0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that
1: matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone i Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today, critical race theory and the bans on teaching it state to state that have been popping up across our country. We've got Rich Lowry and Camille Foster with the debate of debates on this. These are two great guys who went at it, you know, punch for punch, and it was really illuminating. I think we fleshed out all the arguments. I'll leave it to you to decide who got the better of the other man, but it was enjoyable, it was feisty, and it was smart. and I loved it. And this is the big debate right now, right? Like many, many states have banned the teaching of in short form, critical race theory, but it's you know some of this nonsense of trying to teach kids that they're defined by the color of their skin or by their their sex, et cetera. And um, states are finally trying to fight back against this. It's growing and growing. The Teachers Union has been open about the fact that they're on board and pushing it, and they tried to lie about that, get into that. Uh, So is it a good idea? Because it's kind of divided the conservative movement and or the non woke movement is what I should say. So Rich Lowry is the editor of National Review and also hosts. He's one of the hosts of the editors over on um, the National Review. It's their podcast, which I highly recommend. I love it. Really smart talk. Um, And Camille Foster is one of the hosts of the Fifth Column podcast. You guys know him. He's been on the show along with his brethren, uh, co-host of that show and they they actually had Chris Rufo on for a debate on this very issue. There's some backstory with Chris Rufo that we'll get to in one second. But, you know, Camille, he wrote an op-ed about this sort of opposing these bands and he was joined in it by Thomas Chatterton Williams um, and some other authors in the New York Times that he's been supported in it by you know, Camille is um, black. He was supported by some other black well-known names and faces like Glenn Lowry in his position Um So these guys are ones who have pushed back on, you know, wokeness and all this making everything about color, but they think these bands go too far and they've got well thought out reasons for why. So you'll hear the debate. Get to the guys in one second. First, this organizing this outline for this debate has been super fun and super complicated. This is one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, I love to read for a living. That's really what I do is read and learn for a living. and I've been neck deep in all these articles. And, I, and what I've concluded before we even start is that I think all three of us agree on 90% of what we're about to discuss. It's really just what is the solution that we're arguing over? You know, what the problem, because I know I've talked to both of you guys before. I, I think we agree this is a problem, what they're teaching our kids right now. And within the conservative movement, or even just not even conservative, but just sort of anti-woke America is debating what's the best way of Putting an end to this nonsense, or at least fighting back against this nonsense. So let's just start by by defining the problem. Okay, in quotes, the problem. Critical race theory is a term. Chris Rufo's been putting it out there as just sort of a catch-all, but I do think it's important to note it's beyond just this one sort of theory about race. You know, the the academics would say, look, this is just a postgraduate level legal theory. It doesn't appear in K through twelve classrooms. It's basically just a an acknowledgement that discrimination is, is not just about attitudes, but it's, it's about institutions and how they create racist systems over time. Okay. So they make it sound very white bread. It's not, There's it's so many things and I've lived it and I've talked to my audience about how it's manifested in our lives. You know, I've got my, my six year old and my nine year old over the past couple of years being taught that, um, white skin is problematic just by its nature, that the schools were talking about how in every classroom where white children learn there's a future killer cop. That's not part of critical race theory, but it's mm. the messaging that's in schools today. So anyway, all this deeply problematic, and it's the short form is CRT. So that's the problem. And now we're seeing efforts in several states to fight back. We've got over 20 states that have passed or proposed laws preventing the teaching of CRT and other racially based ideologies. Uh, nine states have, have now actually passed restrictions: Tennessee, Oklahoma, Iowa, Idaho. Texas, Florida, and New Hampshire, Arkansas, and Arizona, and again, many other states considering it. And the pushback from you, Camille and David French and Thomas Chatterton Williams and others has been, yes, it's a problem. Don't love this kind of teaching. However, what about free speech? And do we really want the government dictating what can and cannot be said in class and thought in class? And haven't, you know, people who have been promotion, promoting free speech all along been saying, the last thing we want is for government, like people like Joe Biden to be telling us, what must be said or thought in schools? And is, th- is this an abandonment of that principle? Have I, have I summed it up or I'll let you sum up your, your pushback?
0: Yeah, well, I, I want to be very careful here because, you know, I, I co-authored a piece that appeared in The New York Times with Jason Stanley, David French, and Thomas Chatterton Williams. And obviously, I can represent our combined view to the extent I'm drawing directly from that editorial. But beyond that, I'm speaking for myself primarily. Um, yep. and I think in the piece, what we tried to convey here is a general sensibility, that, and now I'm I'm kind of extracting from not so much the the piece, but my speaking for myself in a sense, but that every school board drama need not become a statewide legislative scandal. Um, it is it is not obvious. I mean, most of us have have kids. I think we all have kids, actually. Um, my my daughter is not yet in in sort of big big kids school. She's in preschool, but. I went to school myself, and I can remember circumstances where there were things happening in the classroom that my mother had questions about. And there are mechanisms for adjudicating that sort of problem, for dealing with those kinds of issues. Um, Even now, um, as we find ourselves kind of on the other side of this, quote unquote, or perhaps in the midst of the throes of this racial reckoning, um, a lot has changed in the country. A lot of the ways that we're talking about different issues have changed. And a lot of that has seeped into various aspects of our lives. and certainly active and alive in in classrooms and in school board meetings. And we've seen a lot of the worst examples of that get national news coverage. And a lot of the subtler examples of it aren't necessarily getting there. Um, The question becomes, are there ways to address this beyond haphazardly uh, rushing to try and pass legislation in various states to ban something, something that, really, when we talk about CRT, as you just laid out, Megan, I mean, this is an amalgam of different things. Um, and as a result, the way that folks go about trying to pass these bans, and, and I think it's, it's something that Rich would a- acknowledge as well, is by drafting these pieces of legislation that try very, very hard to get at kind of precise, specific concepts that can't be discussed or must be discussed in a particular way or must be discussed along with something else. And I think the net effect of that, our concern drawing directly from the editorial here, is that we are actually creating a circumstance where it is going to be very, very difficult for teachers to understand how to teach important topics and and really make it a a circumstance where they have to wonder if they can teach it at all. There are elements of James Baldwin's work, of Martin Luther King's speeches and writings that one has to wonder if they can be included. Scathing critiques of the American project, of its defects and deficiencies, the way that it's failed. Talk that is contemporary to, to those men in their lives of what it was like to be white or black in America or what the, the, the specific obligations of persons of different race were. Again, from their lives and perspectives, even introducing historical documents, like reading uh, a, a speech from a Confederate, from a Confederate leader Sort of talking about their perspective and experiences under many of these statutes, those things would be banned at a minimum. One would have to wonder if they didn't face the possibility of some sort of legislative um not legislative but some sort of um, uh, uh, prosecution and in some cases substantial fines um and that can't really be the way that we imagine we can take care of this situation i as you said, man, I, I, I am deeply concerned about the presence of race essentialism in all aspects of our society right now and the degree to which we're not having productive conversations about race. Um, I, I don't, however, think that uh, an approach to trying to ban something in a rather crude, again, this sort of haphazard way, this rush to do something is necessarily going to get us an outcome that actually leads to less of this happening. What I already see happening is the possibility that we can see you know, people who are essentially trying to run afoul of these laws, of these laws on purpose, people who are being brought up, um, potentially having lawsuits filed against them under questionable circumstances. And eventually you're gonna see you know, pink slips and perhaps even, I mean, what? Like arrests that result in, I mean, protests that uh, result in arrests? I mean, are those the kind of outcomes that people imagine are going to actually help us get through this to a much saner place where we can be more reasonable when we're thinking about public education in this country? I, I just don't think that makes a lot of sense.
1: So there's so much to dissect. And I do want to get to your your statement that, you know, certain Confederate general speeches couldn't be taught right these are, these are basically racist speeches saying let me tell you why we need the situation to be as it is and black people aren't as smart as white people and they're not as good as white people so, so according to the way some of these laws are worded you couldn't you couldn't even read that um and that's true the the, the laws a couple of them are written in a problematic way i think just from having read national review and rich Um, he's going to agree with that, that these are not all perfectly worded and could use some revising. But before we get into the specifics of the laws themselves, a couple of them and how they they need revising, let me kick it to you, Rich, on on the concept of this, this way to fight back. Right. As opposed to because what David French has said and and what your 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 op-ed in The New York Times said, Camille, was, you know, a meaningful way of getting back at this is by filing lawsuits. And, and I'm all for that, by the way. I've been saying this is part of the solution for sure. Just you know, it's, it's currently not lawful just to, to discriminate on the basis of race, mm-hmm. and so if you're dragged into some training session as a teacher and told that you're less than because you're white, your school's violating the law. So I'm all for the lawsuits. But what the conservative movement and the non woke people have said is it's not good enough. We need these laws because we need immediacy. Um, it's not a free speech issue at all. This is about the. Citizenry telling the government what it can teach their kids, and um, that this is a useful tool in the arsenal that that should be unleashed ASap for the, for the well-being of our children. So let's start with that, Rich, on whether you agree that this is a this is without the, putting aside the wording of the laws, whether this yeah. is a good way of fighting back.
2: Yeah, you know, first of all, I appreciate the conversation, and Camille, congratulations on the op-ed. There are not many op-eds that people are discussing. Two or three, three weeks later, whatever it is, all the columnists <laughs> are very jealous. So, uh, <laughs> congratulations on that. I think this is a this is a, a worthy effort. Uh, on on the lawsuits, it just puts incredible pressure on individual teachers or, or, or parents to uh, undertake what could be a years long effort to try to push back against this stuff through the courts. And if we're admitting that actually that is in play, as the authors of of this op ed do we're admitting that this is this is poisonous and toxic and why should we tolerate that in our public schools and public schools are public institutions teachers are state actors they're they're teaching state curricula in state owned buildings that parents if they don't aren't pursuing some other alternative have to send their kids to so they they're profoundly small-D democratic institutions, and forbidding these poisonous concepts from being foisted on children is uh, an appropriate democratic, small-D democratic action. So I don't see, in theory, any problem with this at all. In fact, I, I welcome it. Again, Megan, as, as you've stipulated, the, the wording in some of these um, cases is, is problematic and could have been crisper and more clear. But I I just reject the idea that that is out there, that this is going to stop the teaching of slavery or or civil rights. If you look at Tennessee, which the authors of of the op-ed spend some time on that statute, what they forbid is the promoting of of the concept that individuals should feel uh, ashamed or, or discomfort because of their race. So that's different than saying, Oh, here's here's the Atlantic Passage, which was this horrifying, nauseating uh, human rights abuse. And you might feel uncomfortable learning about it because it's a terrible topic. That's not it. It's it's going a teacher going out of his or her way to say you should feel guilty because you are white uh, or you're black or whatever it is that is forbidden. And it just seems to me uh, with public schools, you know, which we don't need adventurous instruction in public schools that's something for colleges and universities when you're dealing with adults when you have instructors who are engaging in academic research where academic freedom is is a core value this this is different this is supposed to be between you know the 40-yard lines this is kind of consensus values and instructions in in our society so uh these efforts strike me as worthwhile
0: I wonder about the the way that you just characterize that, though, Rich. Because especially when you say, you know, this shouldn't be taught in schools. Well, what is this? I mean, we are we are talking about a sprawling catalog of practices and and issues that we, that people have serious concerns about. And when we talk about K through twelve education, we're talking about you know children as young as four and five, um, and children as old as seventeen and eighteen. And in a high school class, there are certain things that young people ought to be exposed to. It seems the way that this is talked about, even, even what you just said there about the Tennessee law, if your interpretation of this is correct, it might be the case that that kids in a civics class couldn't watch a presidential debate because the someone in one of those debates might talk about, say, white privilege, white supremacy, structural racism, or some of these other concepts, and might make an assertion to the fact, to, to the possibility that, or might make an assertion along the lines of white people have unique particular privilege. It is a reality that people are talking about this now, that many Americans feel a particular way about these issues now. And finding constructive ways for students to be able to engage with these questions and issues in a classroom setting with one another, it seems to me that it's, it's urgently important that our that our institutions are kind of up to that task and that and and one of the things that I want to point here, highlight here is that the editorial doesn't only suggest that we can go pursue lawsuits it also says explicitly that a better approach to trying to ban things this kind of negative approach to curriculum you can't do this you can't do that is to build better curriculum that is more thoughtful and is more constructive and affirmatively gives us a sense for how to navigate these complex issues together And and not imagine ourselves as just kind of pushing approved knowledge into young brains, but equipping young people with the talent and the skills necessary to grapple with hard issues.
1: Let me ask you. So that's that's that sounds nice. But what we're up against is a teacher's union. I mean, both of the largest teachers unions in the country are determined to teach this despite their gaslighting of us now. Right. Saying, no, 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 we're not. I mean, they they lifted the dress up. Uh, this month, when the National Education Association, that's the largest teachers union, they had an Mm -hmm. annual conference this month. This is a great story. And they, because the official word sort of out of the left, right? The the media, the pundits, uh, Democratic lawmakers has been, we're not teaching CRT in K through 12. That's not happening. And then the National Education Association (laughs) at their annual conference is like, we have a six figure campaign we're unleashing to, to fund a team of staffers for members who want to learn more and fight back against those who are fighting our CRT rhetoric. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> saying it's very reasonable. They said it's reasonable to teach uh, critical race theory, and we're going to fight back against those who are pushing against us. They forgot. They forgot about the official talking point. And then the Heritage uh, Foundation reported on it, and they promptly, the NEA, removed. All the items on their website that mention CRT, like "Whoops, we didn't say that," you didn't see that, but it was too late. And the second largest teachers' union, American Federation of Teachers, that's Weingarten's union, they've said too they're investing. I I think it's five million dollars into future legal fees to defend teachers who insist on teaching CRT, even though Weingarten is also insisting that CRT is not being taught. Okay, it's being taught, and even the polling, NBC had a report on this recently. It was over fifty percent of teachers either want to teach it or admit privately that they are teaching it. So. It's. I would love to just build better curricula, but mm-hmm. we're up against a group of people who really wants to shove this down our kids' throats. Yeah,
0: and and I think the, the it you raise an important point. The reality, as I mentioned earlier, it is it would be wrong not to acknowledge one that there have already been sort of activist excesses in various schools across the country. It is hard to quantify this problem. I can't say how many schools this is happening in or how, where the worst things are happening. Um, and I think that's really important that we nobody can really quantify this just yet. So it isn't. It's it's important to kind of keep our concern constrained in that way, but at least to be aware of this reality. And you're right to point out what the teachers unions have done. Ibram Kendi was speaking at one of these events and they pledged to buy copies of his books stamped and to, to pollute schools with it all over the country. That bothers oh, me. I, I have serious problems with that. Um, at the same time, one wonders about the appropriate approach to this. And one has to also wonder about the degree to which the way that concern has been generated about these issues and the way that it's being focused at the moment, if that isn't contributing to just kind of a spreading of a brush fire, as opposed to really constructive approaches to trying to address, to, trying to address this problem. I think what's not talked mm. about often enough is the practical limitations of a strategy of trying to pass statewide bans on various things. Like, how many states can we actually get these things passed in? What what percentage well, of states down. won't won't have this protection at all? I imagine if yeah. you don't have and, like, and some a, are going a, a the other red, way. Yeah, I imagine if you don't have a red legislature and a a red governor's office, like that's not happening. And it's also the case that the most awful excesses seem to be concentrated in particular places. Like I've seen a lot of stories out of New York. I've seen a lot of stories out of California. I haven't seen quite so many out of Tennessee. In fact, what I've seen out of Tennessee recently is a teacher who got fired, who seemed to be kind of hankering for the opportunity to get fired over these things. And it turns into a national news story. And it seems to me that that isn't necessarily what we want. I'm thinking, I think a lot about the missed opportunity here. I, I imagine these angry, um, these angry parents going to these meetings, these, te- these, uh, these school board meetings, and demanding something better. Like, I don't know, school choice, for example. Like, it, it is not as though the statewide ban initiative, this haphazard project, isn't one that will cost a tremendous amount of resources and energy. And it's not as though there aren't meaningful risks associated with it. And it's not as though it's guaranteed to work. If these bans are sufficiently, if they're sufficiently narrow so that they don't run afoul of the constitution and so that they don't run afoul of making it difficult to teach complicated materials, they're probably not going to be able to stop most of the things that people are concerned about. The reality is that this is a cultural issue that there is a broad societal issue here and we have to be meaningfully engaged in our local school boards, going to meetings, meeting with teachers. There are no shortcuts here. And anyone who is telling you what there are is is wrong. So
1: I've been, I've been working with a bunch of groups on this. Um, uh, fair is one of them and Mm -hmm. also parents defending education, which is a nonpartisan group, just trying to represent parents who are struggling with all this. And I know that one of the things that Parents Defending Education really wants is for concerned parents to run for school boards. Yep. You got to get on school boards. You can't just sit at home and lament. You got to get in the positions of power. So, Rich, why isn't that the answer? Like grassroots efforts, taking advantage of this enormous energy we've seen among parents who are outraged about this to get them on school boards and change the the curriculum that way as opposed to at the state level. Oh,
2: it has to be a huge part of the solution. So I I disagree with Camille about these laws. Um most of them. You know, I think they're legitimate concerns about some of the wording. But let's say we and I and I take his point, you know, this is only happening in red states with red legislatures and Republican governors. Let's say we, we do this in 15 states. That one, that leaves a huge part of the country, right? 35 states where you haven't done it. Two, if all we do, even if we pass these kind of laws in 50 states, just keeping teachers from making kids feel guilty from uh, over their race, that's not a huge victory, <laughs> right? That's a really minor <laughs> and defensive victory when you think about it. So absolutely, this, this, these school board fights are essential and developing curricula or uh, that, that Teaches truthful versions of American history, or protecting curricula that already do that, is absolutely the ultimate name of the game. And the beauty of our, our system, and having a highly localized system of education, is you can be a parent in you know a, a small town somewhere, or a you know a, a suburban county, and you can go get two hundred signatures on your petition to get on the ballot, or whatever it takes and then you win 800 votes in a school board race and you are hugely influential in and in how your the education of your children and your neighbors children is going to be carried out that's a beautiful thing and parents who are concerned about this should absolutely take advantage of that and that's something that can happen not just in red states it can happen in states all around the country because you know you look like a look at a county by county a political map and you know there there's swaths that the, the country is if you break it down that way, is mostly red, because there's so many uh, red localities. And so th- that's, th- that's, that should be the name of the game, more than these state laws. I defend these state laws. I think what they're trying to do is righteous. But again, it, it's really kind of a defensive and prophylactic action compared to taking over these school boards and preventing the education blob from I- imposing this stuff on our schools and i also take camille's point that mostly you know you look look at where this happening it's happening a lot of places but you know it's, it's cupertino it's, it's mm-hmm. portland it's, as you point out it's a lot of new york but It's coming everywhere unless you stop Mm -hmm. it. And this is the history of these sort of things. Not that we want to get into trans, but, you know, we would have a lot of us would have said, oh, look, 10 years ago, Berkeley says biological males should be able to go into female bathrooms. Isn't that insane? You know, that would never happen here, (laughs) but it's spread Mm -hmm. everywhere. So I think while this debate can be won and before it's too late, it's important to undertake these state measures in the places where you can pass them and uh, fight school board race by school board race all around the country
1: because if you get control of the school boards you can you can go as broad as you want i mean one of the things about these laws is they don't stop the indoctrination on trans issues you know they, they all this stuff about letting your kid leave in the middle of the day to go get cross-gender hormones without telling the parents and not looping the parents in if your kid decides one day to go from being a girl to being a boy they they don't tell the parents like it's crazy how at, at our school our all-boys school that we left they were literally asking the boys every week whether they still felt like boys. That is what my son and his friends told me. It was hmm. insane. Like, gender is just something that's completely fluid. It could change day to day. And just checking back in at an all-boys school with these boys to see whether that changed for them. Like, could you, just, could you just stop it? Stop it. If if my kids got an issue, I want her to be supported. You don't need to keep suggesting it, right? It's like, is anyone feeling suicidal? Anyone today? Anyone feeling it a little? Like some of these things are suggestible. We've seen evidence on that with the trans craze through Abigail Schreier and Lisa Lippmann who did the study and so on, especially with respect to girls. Anyway, my point is, none of these laws address any of that, but you get control of the school boards and you can, you can. So that, I think we all agree that that would be a nice way of fighting back, getting more local control. Moms for Liberty down in Florida, this group I spoke to, they're they're all about that and that's awesome. But like it or not, For good or for worse, there is a push with the states, you know, more and more to do this. I should point out states on the other side have done it, too. Several states have mandated the inclusion of this CRT uh, education into their uh, education systems like California, um, but several others as well, all blue states. And now red states are doing it the other way. And I do think it's it's worth noting they have discretion. The states do have discretion to set the curriculum in their schools. They can mm-hmm. banish texts. They can restrict mm-hmm. teacher's speech. It's different from colleges. You know, the, the K through 12 kids are a captive audience. There's a great piece on National Review Rich by Stanley Kurtz um, saying there's a good reason that we, we can do more to silence or control K through 12 teachers than we can college professors. They're a captive audience. They're minors. They're vulnerable to the authority of these teachers. They, you know, they're held in much higher esteem than college professors are. And Stanley said, this is abuse, what's happening to them. I've said that, too. I, I do think this is child abuse. So to you, Camille, what of the argument that this is this is an emergency? Like we we wouldn't let schools all over the country say uh, the KKK wasn't all wrong. They had a lot of good points. Hiller he made some good points like we would never allow that. And mm-hmm. and I think people view this kind of messaging You know, I mean, there's just one. This is actually out of Oklahoma, Red State. A teacher told his students to be white is to be racist, period. You know, that we we covered the uh, public schools in Buffalo teaching five-year-olds about racist police, making them watch videos of dead children uh, allegedly sort of coming back from the grave to talk about racist cops and so on. So you can see the the feeling by folks who oppose this. This is an equal emergency to stop.
0: Well, well, again, my my perspective on this emergency, however, is, you know, does a sledgehammer actually fix those problems? And it, it seems to me that it that it does not, in fact, fix those problems. That that it is almost certainly the case that in these, in this with this local system that we have, a solution that does make a lot of sense is for parents to get involved in a circumstance like that, to go to their school board, to make the issue known to to local officials and to create a bit of a scandal at that institution and achieve the change that they want. That's what makes sense here. A a statewide ban, again, it seems to me, is going to cause no shortage of problems. And while I know Rich has some disagreement about this, the reality is that the way many of these pieces of legislation are written today, they're going to have a number of far-reaching consequences that can't really be anticipated and could further politicize issues. I have good reason to believe that the degree to which folks are actually kind of overreaching here and creating a bit of a panic is probably inspiring more controversy and will, and will inspire more concern and will make the states that are more interested in these policies perhaps even go a bit further in kind of cementing their perspective here. And to the extent folks who are interested in bans go too far. In their attempts to try and restrain some of these things, it is entirely possible that they could turn public opinion against them very quickly and sort of cement some of these things in the institutions and create a great deal of sympathy for someone. The what you the last thing that you want, if you're someone who's concerned about, you know, creeping racial essentialism in public schools, is kind of a sympathetic victim who is, you know, fired for something that seems rather frivolous to people looking at it from the outside. That that makes people very suspicious about these restrictions. Um, and I don't want to create the perception of you know Ibram Kendi's book being secret knowledge. If if you know 16-year-olds have access to this book, what if they bring them from home? You know, are you are you going to take those things away from them? Are they are they forbidden in the library? I mean, I think it's really important to just bear in mind the kind of limitations of what these schools can actually do. It, it's not the worst thing in the universe if there is something in the library, say, um, at the school that is is perhaps somewhat questionable from all of our shared perspective, but that a kid might have access to, like, there are going to be questions. These conversations are going to happen. It is impossible. It is impossible that students won't have conversations about Black Lives Matter in their, in their college, um, you know, government and politics, in their high school government and politics courses. I mean, my wife in her second year in high school participated in a debate club and debated affirmative action back and forth. These things will happen. And I don't think it is, a, it is an even re- realistic possibility that we can put the genie back in the bottle and sort of put a, put a shield around ourselves and not have these conversations. The question becomes how to do these kinds of things productively, not to try to ban them out of existence.
1: Mm. What about that, Rich? Because there's, I think, um, Camille's now sort of getting to the text of the law, the, the text of some of the laws and why it's problematic. Like, they're in Oklahoma and, t- and Texas, they prohibit K-12 through public school teachers from making part of a course any one of these banned concepts. You can't make it even a part of the course, cannot be a part of the course um, to to sort of discuss concepts that create division or resentment between races and social classes and so on. And that's, that's different. That's different from like, I mentioned, um, Stanley, he, he wrote a draft of these laws and even he has said, it should have said, you can't inculcate, you can't promote the idea that one race is better or worse than another. I think, I mean, that's already the law. They're just not following it. Um, but they didn't go with inculcate. They went with something much more generic and inclusive and, and, you know, broad, like you just can't even discuss it basically.
2: Yeah. Having talked to people in Texas, the, the intention is again, as we were talking about, Tennessee is promoting these concepts. So it's one thing to say, you know, John C. Calhoun thought that slavery was a benign institution that was good for whites and for blacks. You know, that, that's a, Historical fact. It's another to say slavery was a good institution. I'm here standing in front of the cl- classroom telling you that slavery was a good institution. Mm-hmm. That's that's promoting. But to Stanley's point, uh, make it clear. I mean, this is law. Uh, law should should be precise and clearly worded so everyone knows what they're dealing with. And inculcate would uh, I believe. I'm curious what uh, Camille thinks. I believe would would take care of the problem and make it clear. What we're getting at, just to uh, a couple of points that um, Camille made, we're not talking about you know banning books from school libraries. We're not talking about banning you know the topics that that can be debated. we we're, we're talking about stopping uh, teachers and administrators from foisting these poisonous concepts on children. And is there a panic about this? Yes. Should there be a panic about this? Yes, absolutely. And I, mm-hmm. I just can't. I think you made this point. Uh, earlier, Megan, I just can't believe that if there was one school district in America where uh, teacher training materials or what's being taught to fifth graders was the, the KKK was right, that there wouldn't instantly, you know, all fifty states wouldn't pass law. So you can't do that, and and it would almost be universal <laughs> assent. So I, I don't get the why why it's not uh, uh, similar here, and and then finally, just in fomenting mm-hmm, controversy, mm-hmm. we're. This controversy, if, if you're uh, a, a reasonable, right-thinking parent, this controversy is coming to you. You might not be interested in this controversy, but it's coming to you, so mm. you gotta you gotta be uh, re- ready to to fight it, uh, tooth tooth and nail. And I mean, the teachers' unions, just those resolutions passed by the NEA. I mean, they could have been drafted by Chris Rufo to prove his point. Right. That's exactly what they do. So these, these are these are the people we're entrusting our children with. We send them there six, eight, whatever hours a day, trusting that uh, that, that their minds won't be twisted and that they'll actually be uh, taught uh, straight history. And we can't trust them. And that, that's the bottom line. We cannot trust them. And, and, and this this is why we need uh, the, the exercise of the small d democratic authority of the people in these various places to stop it from happening. Go
0: ahead, Can I speak to two things that you just mentioned there? Thank you, uh, Megan. At first, I mean, I think it's important to note that that these, these bills, and, and I think it has been said already, but it's important to say again, th- these pieces of legislation are all over the place in terms of quality and the things that are actually being banned. There was a, a proposed Kentucky legislation um, that included language that would have restricted um, classroom instruction or discussion, formal or informal, um, or the distribution of any printed or d- digital materials um, with the same sort of restrictions around um, you know, the, these, these particular issues about race and how they're being discussed and what's being discussed and what's being promoted. But again, we're talking about informal discussions in class being restricted by a yeah, bill. that's crazy like that becomes a huge problem. So my thing is, should we panic? No. Panic is never good. That's not a good strategy when you have a serious problem. You don't panic, you develop a strategy, you develop a thoughtful plan, and you imagine what what a good outcome looks like here. And quite frankly, I just don't hear enough of those conversations and to 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 put this in a into a framework that I think we'll be familiar since the Klan has been mentioned a few times. And I know one of Chris's favorite things to do is to ask, you know, what if the Ku Klux Klan was doing this? Well, I think it's important to differentiate between that that thought experience and the reality that we're facing. Because if, in fact, the Ku Klux Klan was in a position to get something developed and instituted in our public schools anywhere in America, we would have a very severe problem. And it would not be the sort of yeah, problem but that anyone could have. their
1: is, is repeated by CRT. I mean, it's the, this you, is, you know, the, the old, who's saying it, right? Uh, is, it, is this something Robin DiAngelo said or something David Duke said? And you can't always tell the difference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this that is actually true. Um, although, that's a, I think I, I would love to take that in a different direction. But But I think what I'm saying is that to the extent that's the case, our problem is far more severe than the curriculums in schools. Like Uh, there is a, there is is. a social issue. There is a cultural issue that actually has to be addressed. And the notion that you can address that cultural social issue with these bands is just, I mean, I I find it, I find it laughable. Like you can't Mm. actually prevent teachers from finding sophisticated way to get their own perspective into the classroom. And it will always happen. This is, this is the reality. So the thinking Mm. here is not that you can make, that you can you can sort of use my perspective anyways is that you can't use the law to make these places these kind of pure cathedrals where there is no sort of political influence at all where there is no kind of ideological valence to these to these classrooms like some of that is always going to be there the question becomes like how do we strike a healthy constructive meaningful balance in these classrooms how do we make certain that kids are getting well-rounded educations well, our school system has had a lot of problems for a very long time. Um, and post-COVID, it would be great if we spent some time thinking constructively about how to fix those problems. Um, we've got problems with literacy, with math, all over the country. Kids who are not learning in these schools already. And um, I, I, think it's, I think it's shameful um, that folks are, are interested in having this kind of ideological conflict. And I'm not blaming the parents who are responding to activists who have done this to them, who have brought this fight to them. Um, right. But I am saying that the appropriate response it seems to me is to say, hey, slow down. We know that we can sort of develop uh, programs for these schools that work. This, these are the solutions that make sense. And it would be great if a lot of this activist energy, if a lot of the money that was being raised around these issues was being used to, one, yes, fund uh, uh, lawsuits where necessary, where egregious things are happening. You can, in fact get some sort of action and remedy that doesn't take years. You can you can get an injunction that will bring immediate relief to families. Um, and you can start to meaningfully develop curriculum. And I know FAIR is doing some of that work, but it would be great to have more people doing that work as well. And a lot of this energy that's going into legislation being directed in that way. And of course, school choice is a really important goal as well.
1: Up next, what about all those states who are mandating the teaching of this kind of stuff, this critical race theory nonsense, divisive awfulness? Um, Why can they do it, but other states who oppose it can't ban it? We'll get into that uh, in one minute. I love lawsuits. As a former lawyer, I love using the law to shut this down because most of the stuff is illegal. It's already illegal. It's just they're ignoring it and getting away with it. So. Yes to lawsuits, but I also understand the point that they take a long time. They're expensive. You, not every case will get picked up by parents defending education or by FAIR or by mm-hmm, one of these mm-hmm. groups that's trying to help, you know, so it's frustrating. And as, as a parent who was undergoing this with all three of my kids in their schools, you don't want to say, OK, I'm going to file a lawsuit. I'm going to wait. And, and meanwhile, your kid's being shamed every day for his race or his gender. It's like, no, screw you. I, we're out of here. We're out of here. You're not getting one more day of this abuse of my child. Not one. Right. So that's what makes you go say, pass a law, do what you have to do so I can shove it down this teacher's throat when she tries to teach my kid that he's a racist because of pigmentation over which he has no control. Right. So I, I understand the emotion behind it. But um, can I just m- make one point? I don't you know how you guys do at the end of the editors, Rich, you know, your your the piece that you recommend everybody read. I didn't hear you guys. It's a brilliant mention feature, this one, Megan. I'm, I love it. It's I actually do a lot of my reading up, based yeah. on the recommendations yeah. you do at the end of that. <laughs> but I, I, want, I want to make it on the I want my recommendation to make it. <laughs> um, and it's the piece called What Happened to You by Andrew Sullivan. It's dated July 9th. It's, it's a on his Substack. sub And it's yeah. it's the subheading is the radicalization of the American elite against liberalism. And I have to mm-hmm. point this out because you correctly point out, Camille, and you've been railing about this, too. There's something bigger wrong with the country right now. It's, schools are a problem, no question. And especially because of the things Stanley Kurtz raised. You know, they're minors, they're vulnerable, they're a captive audience. But the problem is so much bigger than that. And he, he writes in his piece, he kind of diagnoses it, and he quotes Wesley Yang a lot. And I, my eyes were opened. I read this and I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly right. Here's just a sample. He writes we are going through the greatest radicalization of the elites since the 1960s. This isn't coming from the ground up. It's being imposed ruthlessly from above, marshaled with a fusillade of constant MSM propaganda, and its victims are often the poor and the black and the brown. It nearly lost the Democrats the last election. And he goes on to basically say every what's happened here is the sudden rapid stunning shift in the belief system of the American elites. It's sent the whole society into a profound cultural Dislocation, I'm quoting here. In essence, it is an ongoing moral panic against the specter of white supremacy, which is now bizarrely regarded as an accurate description of the largest, freest, most successful multiracial democracy in human history. <laughs> and he he quotes Wesley Yang's coinage of the phrase, the successor ideology. That's what's taking over liberalism um, in this country. You know, s- sort of this where people used to be, where people used to stand up for due process and free speech. And now all those things are considered planks of uh, an oppressive system, right? You can't be for due process anymore. Or you're a racist. You can't, you can't be for free speech or objectivity because that's racist and sexist and so on. Anyway, you got to read the whole piece. But to your larger point, Camille, we do need to spend some time on that and how you fight that. Because people who are on the left are on our side in fighting that. And Andrew Sullivan's one of them.
0: Yeah. I think you could potentially lose some of those people if you are engaged in a a legislative battle nationwide that produces, in some instances, really bad laws that run afoul, not necessarily of the First Amendment, but run afoul of our general principles of having a cultural sort of appreciation for the importance of respecting diversity of thought. And creating yeah, curriculum that are sort of sufficiently diverse and complicated.
1: What about? But Camille, well, I, how about I, like I, California, Oregon, Washington, Illinois? They mandate CRT
0: in California. If I'm not mistaken, it's not it's not a statewide mandate. They've developed the developed curriculum, and schools can decide whether or not they want to utilize it. But I think you do raise a good point there. And the question is, like, what can be done in those states? Well, in those states, one, you can't pass a ban, so the things that are left to those people. And I, I think it's important to equip them with their t- with let them know what their options are go to your school board meeting, be involved in the classroom, engage with, your te- engage with teachers there. And if there is a serious violation of your civil liberties, get a lawyer, reach out to one of these fine organizations that are helping people to file these civil rights lawsuits. And yes, it does take some time for these federal cases to run their course, but you can secure an injunction and that can happen in as little as a month. And once you do, that can bring some immediate relief. Um and even the specter of injunctions and and quite frankly I think I'd love to see these things flying like all over the place just get a bunch too. of them filed you will you will scare a lot of these school boards straight yes. you will scare a lot of these school That's systems true. straight and that is what needs to happen here I, I think it's important to enter into the record um my one of my co-conspirators on this piece uh, David French who was formerly at Fire um and Fire currently um uh, Greg Lukianoff is the is the head over there. They've had profound success. And they fight for free speech to,
1: rights on college campuses. Yes, on
0: college campuses in particular. And they've had profound success using legislation to get these universities to get rid of their speech codes. Like, incredible you mean, you, you success. You mean using lawsuits? Yes, using lawsuits. using lawsuits. Using I'm sorry, using lawsuits to induce to, to induce universities to effectively stopped using these speech codes to, to pull back on them and have seen marked improvements in the quality of the, the sort of survey results that they've been doing year over year. And it's the sort of thing that can be achieved here if folks are sort of constructively and thoughtfully approaching these issues. Um, I, I worry about this being sort of analogized to the Tea Party movement. I don't know that the Tea Party movement was terribly successful. If I remember correctly, the principal issue that the Tea Party was concerned about was the debt. The debt. How did that work out? You had a panic. You had a furor. You you got people excited. They were energized. They showed up at some meetings, but they didn't really accomplish much. And it would be a damn shame if we didn't really accomplish much now, because I actually think it matters. I think it matters that our schools already weren't doing a very good job, and I think it matters now that in some schools, yes, we are seeing kind of a a, a push for kind of ideological indoctrination. Um, and at a moment when the country is so weirdly fractious and so many things are unhe- are politicized in unhealthy ways, it would be a real shame if we missed the opportunity to find constructive ways to navigate around these problems.
2: So 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 let me get uh respond to Camille, what you were saying just the answer just prior to this one about this this vast cultural tide and, and we can't kind of use laws to fight back against it. A- again, K through twelve education is uh, public k through twelve education is a state institution mm-hmm. and yes, ha- having uh, s- state rules about how you how you uh, teach kids doesn't stop this vast cultural tide but it's st- established it can establish a bulwark against that cultural tide in a very important area and when you advocate you know um, people running for school boards and and influencing what their schools do that way school boards and, and this is this is public action, mm-hmm. so you're really you're just making a distinction between um certain levels of of state authority you're you're not actually uh defending a, a kind of a libertarian. Ah, uh, principle and I just object to maybe I misunderstood what you were saying earlier, but K through twelve teachers, they shouldn't just be these free-floating people who show up of in the classroom not. they've read the New York Times magazine <laughs> but they're gonna that day you know, say the United States is is a a, a racist uh, society of course from not beginning yeah. to end. And they they in the classroom they do not have free speech rights. You can't control what they That's say right. once they're out out of the classroom. So so they should teach what the um, what the the people through through their representatives, whether it's a state state level or local school boards, what they are told to teach—that is their role. But these and are prohibitions are, on they are what they're going to be influenced, can... as you know, the NEA resolutions suggest, by this hideous doctrine that's very fashionable and influential now. That has to be stopped, and uh, these, these kind of state laws they they're uh, they don't take care of the issue. It's more important to to uh, get the curricula right, but it it's also worthy to say, nope, you're not teaching our kids that they're inherently racist, you're not teaching them they should feel guilty because of their race. You're not doing that and then we'll go on the school boards and we'll, we'll tell you more about what you should specifically teach them.
0: Yeah again, I, I think ahead, we're man. still talking about restrictions on specific concepts I and mean, and in some cases, we imagine that we're talking about restrictions on specific um statements effectively that you can't tell a, a person that they should feel shame in practice though because we're talking about restricting material in addition to restricting um sort of statements that can be made and because the reality in practice again is that you're usually going to have a circumstance where a child is coming to their parents and saying hey i felt bad like what the teacher said in class like made me feel bad and i on account of my race there is a tremendous amount of subjectivity in all of these circumstances, and I don't know that create that it's important to imagine not only the possibility that you might be able to to sort of remedy this problem in this way, but the reality that you're going to introduce into these classrooms uh, a, a, a kind of chilled climate, the possibility of a kind of punishment and censure for things that maybe we don't want there to be punishment and censure over and we're, we're denying ourselves the opportunity to do this in a more productive way. I I think there is a material difference between passing these, these restrictions statewide on particular concepts and ideas and around feelings and sentiments as opposed to having school boards that are working on people getting elected to school boards if necessary, working on developing curriculums that make sense and working on enforcing the the same sort of standards against uh, discrimination and rights violations that we have on the books already that we have that we can respect at the federal level and, and making certain that those things are happening in our in our schools like but you actually at the have federal the laws level is going another have, way well i'm saying you you have matter. this already you have this already and you have these bodies that are that are there you can you can use those things in order to achieve this goal and again i do think at, at some level like it has to come back to durable solutions. And I do think that school choice is a much more durable solution than any of these other things. And I think it is a profound error to waste all of the energetic interest and, and activism that's happening and to not be pushing for that in a more you serious, want it channeled into a different serious way.
2: Well, a couple things. One, you've said we parents should use lawsuits in part to chill, to make all these people scared they're going to get sued. So uh-huh. are, 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 you, are you for or against them? I'm saying the, 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 the existing, civil rights,
0: then, existing civil rights lawsuits. There's, there's so you make we've them got scare. decades, well, yes, instead, we've got decades be a, you're, to you're scare them. Make
2: everyone well, I really say be sued.
0: well, I'm saying so, scare them straight, the activists who are going too far. When there is a legitimate violation, yes, file a lawsuit, get these people to stop doing it. But I don't want to have frivolous lawsuits being filed at the state level all the time because someone says something that made mm. me feel uncomfortable.
2: There's gonna like, be a I don't fuzzy, think that's really the gonna same There's going to be a fuzzy thing. line. I think we fuzzy can make it fuzzier. <laughs> okay, and on. once, once you're ahead, saying we, we should sue uh, over this, and and I believe earlier you, you did say you, you wanted wanted people to get brushback pitches and, and, and be worried about this. So I, I don't see what the principal distinction between making people afraid of getting sued and Writing a a ban on on this sort of instruction into state law, and then also as a practical matter, these provisions they they relate to other state laws. So in Florida, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, I won't blame you for this one, Camille. This was another New York Times piece, but there's a big New York Times magazine piece by this guy Timothy Snyder. This was amazing,
1: Timothy Snyder. I read your rebuttal to this online, Rich, and it was. I'm shocked by how horrible his piece was. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Oh,
2: well, thank you. But anyway, he, he quotes this provision that was passed by the the uh, state um, school board um, saying you you can't inculcate, you know, kind of 1619 project that that uh, U.S. is inherently racist. And so, oh, my God, see, they banned teaching slavery. But the immediate prior sentence in that rule was make sure that you are faithfully and accurately teaching you know, the history of slavery, the history of Jim Crow. And the sentence after that in the rule says, make sure you're teaching, you know, the Bill of Rights uh, and all the amendments to the Constitution, obviously, including, you know, uh, the, the uh, uh, amendment, uh, eliminating, abolishing slavery, etc. And then this rule doesn't stand alone. it It, it is a way um, to to let teachers know how to interpret the, the state statute that sets out the standards for what students are supposed to learn in Florida. And of course, that includes African-American history, and includes slavery, includes Jim Crow, includes Martin Luther King. So it, the, these places, even with the problematic law uh, rules, they don't exist in isolation. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll be interpreted uh, in, in in the context of existing state standards that everywhere include teaching slavery. And it's just not the case. I'll bet. You know, uh, I'll bet you a dinner, Camille, at uh, Gavin Newsom's fail- favorite restaurant, French Laundry, <laughs> there's not one school district that's going to stop teaching slavery. Be- no, because, I, I, think, I think I think that's about it. Yeah. There, well, sorry. Last thing to go to the, the administration and say, OK, uh-huh. so what what can I and can't I teach? And if the administration's doing its job, it says don't tell kids to feel guilty because of their race. Do let them read, you know, Frederick Douglass, Douglas, you know, what is the what is July 4th to a slave?
0: yeah what what to the slave is the Fourth of July yeah abs- which is just beautiful, and if people haven't read it, they should um listen i i would I will say again, I think there these laws are of variable quality, some of them are less egregious than others, some of them are are perfectly fine and are perhaps a bit redundant in the sense that they're totally consistent with like the tradition of civil rights um litigation that that we have in this country and and that is. That is one category of issue. I think the other category of issue though, is again, the limitations of uh, a campaign to achieve these bans broadly, perhaps nationwide, and the energy that's being directed towards that and the energy that's not being directed towards uh, other issues. The sentiment that's being, I think, pushed in many instances that these bans can in fact, quote unquote, save us um, or save millions of kids when in fact, as you acknowledged, Rich, um, the reality is that people have to get involved and get, stay involved um, and remain involved. And, and I think a third thing to keep in mind, just to kind of put this all into perspective, like, there's a, a sense in which we can, we can allow ourselves to become overconcerned um, about some of these issues. Like, the reality is that even, even if, you know, there is a, a classroom where like Ibram Kennedy's book is on offer or something like that, Like it's not as though every single um, public, public school program that is ever introduced like, has this profound like social consequence. And there's a, a sense in which I think I do want people to be concerned about this. I do want them to be involved in their classrooms. I do want them to be engaged with their teachers and, and asking serious questions about the way we're approaching these issues. But I also worry about hysteria. I worry about imagining that the worst possible thing is happening in every circumstance, because I do think that that could create um, sort of a cycle of panic and could induce people to behave in bad ways.
1: I am in a panic because it's horrifying what they're teaching these kids. It's not it's not generic. It's not like, okay, 10th graders read Kendi and then we'll discuss in the school. That's fine. You know, you can you can. Hit it. You can support it. You can do what you want. in Most classroom settings, although everyone knows the teacher is going to be on Kendi's side just because they tend to lean left. Um, it's about the littles for me, the littles being told that they need to be ashamed. Right. These kindergartners, it's absurd being being shamed for the color of their skin. And it's happening in in places like Iowa. You know, we had on and in Wisconsin, uh, we mm-hmm. had on former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker talking about a case out of Iowa that was deeply disturbing. So it's spreading. It's already spread. We've already been derelict in letting it get a hold of too many classrooms and too many school districts. And now there is a bit of a panic on stopping it and doing what we need to get these teachers off of their pedestals, teaching the wrong message, teaching messages that have been illegal for quite some time. And you need only switch the races in the discussion to know that on a a guttural level. Uh, But I will say this is one for you, Rich. On the language of the laws, there's another problem. It's not just the ones that instead of saying inculcate, you can't inculcate these views with the students, but just you can't even include these concepts. That's not that's not OK. You, you got you got to revise those laws in like Oklahoma and Texas. But some of these laws say and I'll, and I'll quote this is sort of an this is a standard clause for these laws. Um, it would be unlawful for teachers to include in the classroom material that promotes division between or resentment of. Are race, sex, religion, mm-hmm. creed, nonviolent, political affiliation, social class or class of people. OK, so they're trying to say don't teach the black kids to resent the white kids or vice versa. But my mind went to what about let's go back eight years when we had all those uh, ISIS offshoots attacking various pockets of the United States. And we did a lot of talking about radical Islam and what they stand for and what they were doing. Right. Could could we discuss what that religion or creed believes under this law? Because you could definitely make the argument that it promotes resentment of a religion or a creed. And I could see a lawsuit based on that in these very states saying, what?
2: Again, I mean, it goes to what the meaning of promote is. I I, I would think we wouldn't want any teacher in America saying Muslim kids should feel badly because of ISIS. No, but it's feel-
1: material that promotes resentment. So you're, right. pre- you're presenting well, the I,
2: material. Is a teacher promoting it, or is a teacher saying but, ISIS but it, is a radical But it still law.
0: says material but, that promotes. It. I think there's a distinction but, there that that. But it's that, not, is that it you're t- making that teacher, isn't in the law.
2: Is it the teacher promoting it? Look, I, I think the, the wording of some of these things is problematic. I'll readily concede that. I just don't think there's good reason not to have well-crafted laws in this regard. And I, I just don't think there's, it's not a choice between having these state laws and having action in the school boards. You know, Texas passed this law at the same time the parents of South Lake rose up against this uh, effort in their schools to impose kind of a, a radical anti-racist regime. You can, you can chew gum, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So it's not, it's not a choice. And the, the Texas law is, is messy in all sorts of ways. Uh, partly because of the, the procedure of of what happened, they kind of ran out of time and it wasn't what they wanted the final version to be and it will be uh-huh. cleaned up in the special session and to Camille's point about panic, I do think parents should be panicked, you should be panicked, but legislatures shouldn't be writing uh, in a fit of hysteria they should be carefully considering things like Stanley Kurtz's m- model. Uh, law, which was not written in a panic. This is something he's been fo- pressing on and focused on for years and, and making it airtight.
1: Coming up, we're going to get into whether the Department of Education is a meaningful resource to people who don't want this stuff being taught in their schools. Here's a hint. Good luck. <laughs> Before we get to that and what they're doing, uh, we're going to bring you a feature we have here on the show called Asked and Answered, where we try to address some of our listener mail. And for the question, we have our executive producer, Steve Krakauer, who goes through all the mail, both on our social media and on our secret account where you can email us, Steve, which is?
0: That's right. Yeah. Questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. We've been getting more and more of these every day, which is is great to see. Um, Also getting a lot on social media, always uh, making some noise on those social media accounts. But this one came to us um, from that email address. Molly wants to know, do you still get nervous before interviews? And she wants to say, thanks again for being such a strong woman with a strong voice, literally and figuratively.
1: Thank you, Molly. Uh, I don't really anymore. I have, you know, as recently as being in the prime time of Fox. I remember uh, I've I've referenced this interview before with Dick Cheney, where he came on. It was very contentious. He had tried to blame the Iraq War on Barack Obama, which is so so weird to, for Dick Cheney to be doing that. And um, I knew it was going to be contentious. And Dick Cheney's kind of scary. So yeah, I was a little nervous before that. And I know if you go back and look at it, you'll hear my I was running out of breath on a couple of the questions. And I remember talking to my therapist about it later. I'm like, I think there might be something wrong with me. I was running out of breath in some of these questions. And he's like, he asked me, who are you talking to? What's going on? He's like, you were nervous. Like, oh, oh, you know what? That makes perfect sense. Um, Because it's not, I'm not that used to getting nervous. So it was unfamiliar to me, but now I, now I see. And then um, before that, you know, now famous, infamous, depending on your point of view, debate with Trump and the woman question, I was, I guess, a little nervous, like in the weeks, like in the days before the debate, because he was already really circling around me and calling attention to me behind the scenes. And, you know, I was on his radar in, in a negative way. But as you may have heard that day, for whatever reason, I had a terrible stomach issue. And that was not nerves. That was that was either a stomach bug or something more nefarious. Go ahead and read my book. Settle for more. And um. I spent the whole afternoon throwing up in my hotel room and I did not know whether I was going to make that debate at all. And uh, Abby was with me in the hotel like she looked terrified, (laughs) terrified I wasn't going to make it. Uh, But she got she got some sort of a medication from my doctor and he said, if you can keep it down for 30 minutes, you won't throw up anymore. And I did. I managed to keep it down for 30 minutes and I went out there that night and I the last thing I was thinking about was my nerves. I was all I could think about was do not vomit on national television. We had the whole plan. I was going to throw up in the bucket. The cameras were going to cut away. They were going to cut the mics. The bucket was right with me. I had a blanket on my legs. We had the plan for me to vomit in front of 20 million people. And so when you got that going, you know, sort of like when you have to go get a shot and they pinch you on your other arm, (laughs) it's kind of what was happening there. Uh, On the podcast, not at all because it's, I don't know, it's all within my control. It's You can have longer, fleshed out discussions. So if something goes wrong, I don't know, it's just nicer because... There's room for exploration, nuance, uh, emotional highs and lows. So I just find it uh, less nerve wracking and more fulfilling on many levels. I don't know. Nothing else coming to mind. Vladimir Putin, maybe a little. Not really, though. I kind of that was exciting. So anyway, long and short of it is I'm in a good business because nerves don't really hit me too much. I would say all my years of practicing law very much helped. So, you know, like anything, if you're afraid of public speaking, do more public speaking and it gets better. And, uh, you know, being on my feet, making arguments in front of courts of law, being pummeled by nine times out of 10 male judges on my logic, my reasoning, basically being treated like an idiot by opposing counsel. That's all good for you. It's Not pleasant in the moment, but it's good for you long term. Uh, So anyway, thank you for the question, Molly. I appreciate the shout out and the kind compliment. And uh, to all those of you out there who would like to do something challenging that may cause you some nerves. Just whatever it is, do it, and then do it again, and then do more of it, and then do more of it still, and you two will cross over to the other side where Dick Cheney no longer scares you. Am I there? I don't know. Maybe we'll have him on someday and figure it out. (laughs) Now, back to our guests in one second. One of the things that's jumped out at me in just researching all the various back and forth on this is... The feds have stuck their nose in here in a way that makes the state's reaction more defensible. You know, the Department of Education is now trying to push through a rule that will funnel grants to schools that teach critical race theory, that that Mm -hmm. offer grants to U.S. history classes that teach CRT, the 1619 Project, Ibram X. Kendi, et cetera, several million dollars. And so I can see the argument that, number one, the feds are the feds are already sticking their nose into this. So each state, you know, it being a federalist system, is trying to fight back saying, oh, no, 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 you will not do that. And secondly, that normally you might you might be able to complain to the Department of Education if this were happening, if the KKK, you know, messaging, you know, Hitler was not all wrong, that kind of thing. You could go to the Department of Education and say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yo, <laughs> help us out, this is not okay. But they're planning on imposing CRT in American schools. The, the Department of Education is the one, that's funneling these grants out. So you can't complain to them. You have no help other than some private lawyer who may or may not take your case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you make a really good important point that the the sort of cultural valence of the the current administration is certainly more in favor of um, a, a more kind of fundamentalist like approach to teaching about systemic racism and making certain that these things are kind of inculcated throughout the the curriculum, or at least that there are incentives for folks to embrace this at the state level. And that's something that's worth drawing attention to um, and something that's worth pushing back against. Um, and there's a context in which that ought to happen. Um, but again, I, I just don't think these bans actually address that in any sort of meaningful way. They certainly don't prevent it um, in, in most instances. So, it it still returns to this question of exactly what do the curriculums, what do good curriculums look like? What does a good approach to teaching about these complicated issues look like? What is a good approach to, to teaching about systemic racism that isn't, you know, overly politicized actually look like? And I don't think we're having a lot of those constructive conversations right now. We are imagining that the appropriate remedy is to stop things.
1: Don't you feel like we were getting close to that? Now, I don't, I don't argue that we were doing it perfectly in the United States, yeah. right? Like the whole Tulsa thing. I think there was a point that, that's, that a lot of this stuff hasn't been taught or highlighted, and I, I get that. So you can always do better. But I feel mm-hmm. like we were doing this. You know, it's not like any classroom in America, at, at least most, were skipping over the civil rights movement, MLK, Jim Crow. Yeah. We were teaching all that. And and mm-hmm. s- like we the way... The way the messaging is right now, going back to the Andrew Sullivan piece, is as if like you've missed the whole story. It's that the country itself is racist. Every institution is racist. And unless you're teaching, we don't they don't want to teach about Jim Crow. They want teaching the 1619 Project. This country was founded to promote slavery, you know, a a proposition that's been roundly criticized and derided as completely not factual by Nicole Mm Hannah-Jones in The New York Times. Right, they, they want a different way of teaching that is not fact based and is really just based in a far left opinion and view of America that is not supported, I would argue, and certainly not shared by most Americans. So like the frustration is the, the system was working OK, not perfectly, but OK, and they've changed it to a way that's really racist. And that's what people are trying to fight back against. Right. It's not like they've, they've screwed it up. They haven't improved it.
0: I think it's a question of what the degree to which those changes have actually happened and the degree to which, I mean, the reality is that the 1619 Project exists. It It is one Pulitzer Prize, a Pulitzer Prize um, that people like ta C. Coates have been writing for a number of years about these issues and are, you know, revered, celebrated um, authors, journalists, wordsmiths, and their work is almost certainly going to be analyzed by young people in class. Again the question to yeah, you're not the saying you agree with 1619
1: project you're saying it's it's there deal it's there
0: it. it is absolutely there and again i think the and this is really a, a profound misunderstanding by by many people including i think chris Rufo, who who read the the new york times editorial that we we pulled together and was was i, I guess profoundly offended by it and took a great deal of it personally despite the fact that it never Certainly mentioned him at so. all um, but the, the reality is that I think we were trying to do a number of different things in that piece, as you do, when you have a bunch of different people contributing, it's like kind of trying to posit an affirmative vision for what our schools can be. I mean, that first paragraph or second paragraph ends with a sentence that says that, you know, that the bad version of a public education system in our society is one where, you know, you're practicing indoctrination. And that was those, those words, I know when I saw them and, and we were including them, like they have particular meaning to me it certainly doesn't allow for you know a critical race theory indoctrination program the, you know the same editorial pushes back against the notion that that parents don't have reason for concern that they don't have reason to to wonder whether or not the sort of stewardship of their children's education is is sort of in good uh, trustworthy hands I think there are reasons to be concerned. The question becomes like, what do we do from a policy standpoint to try and improve things? And I think you're absolutely right. There's a sense in which, you know, I have many, many challenges with our public education system. I, there are many things that I would like to see happen. I think we do need profound reforms. Um, but I also think you're right in the sense that I don't know that there was a profound deficiency when it comes to sort of the the curriculum and the approach to sort of slavery and discrimination and the values that we want to get students to understand at least from my own experience but in 2021 like they're going to need to be conversations and there are necessarily necessarily going to be conversations about issues that are live balls today there is no universe where schools are going to be able to avoid discussions about the kind of issues that black lives matter have raised um, about again systemic racism about racial justice more um, broadly, and quite frankly, like white supremacy and the the new way that it's utilized, like these things are going to come up. Um, and I think putting putting one's head in the sand and imagining that you can essentially just kind of make all of the conversations safe um, via fiat is just, I think, it's a mistake. Like well, this is, go this is going to the, be a hard problem to
2: fix. I just go back to the, the concept of kind of the forty yard lines for for public education. And Matt Iglesias, Former writer at Vox now has a very popular Substack, progressive but a, a heterodox one. A week or two ago, wrote this this piece. I didn't agree with a, a lot of it. It criticized me personally, but it, it <laughs> made the point. You know, Nicole, Nicole Hannah Jones in, in 1619. That's not what should be taught in the public schools. The public schools are like the basic consensus in between the 40 yard lines. 1619 projects over on the 20 or the 30, or wherever wants to be the 50. But uh, it's not the 50 now. It's not even close to the 50-yard line. So why would you? We need kids. I mean, they barely know about 1776. And, and we're actually going to go back and say, no, it's 1619. Uh, it's insane. And we, we need to defend, in large parts of the country, just what, what's already being taught. Why, why does it need to be dis- distorted by this, these fashionable concepts that, in, in important respects, aren't even factual or good history? That should be excluded from the K through 12 education, by all means, you know, let's debate it when, when they get in to, to college and, and they're going to be indoctrinating colleges, what happens now, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And the point about how successful, uh, in my friend, David French's lawsuits have been. Yeah. He, I mean, he's won many, many lawsuits, but talk to a college kid, ask them whether they're scared of speaking their minds in college campuses. Now they are, yeah, they I mean, almost that all a, are. That has a lot so, more to do with the yeah, culture yeah, than the just, speech codes. Yes. R- rely on uh, lawsuits to to protect us from the stuff invading K through twelve. I just don't think's realistic.
1: Can I just make clear, in the future, please please avoid sports references. You know me better than that, Richard. <laughs> 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 just that I was beyond pale. Baseball, baseball metaphors, but uh, I'll see okay. some. Disaster. Take it away, Camille.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to ask a clarifying question. 1619 Project, There, some of these laws have specifically prohibited it from being used in classrooms. Um, is that something you would support? Is that, you think, a, a good model?
2: I'm with Stanley. I think it's you'd want to say you can't inculcate it. Uh, I don't see why it has to be in history classes. I, I think it shouldn't be in history classes. I can see how it be in some contemporary issues course. But Mm -hmm. if a uh, if a high high school student can get a uh, a, an excellent education with and needing uh, learning everything she or he needs to know to have a good Mm -hmm. foundation in American history and civics without reading Nicole Hannah Jones to uh, uh, that, I I think, is a fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: especially because she's you know, The New York Times has been quietly erasing all of her assertions on, you know, the country actually being founded on slavery since they got hit by all those historical scholars. So if they won't even stand by it, why would we be teaching it? I have a question for you, Camille, about your op-ed yeah. in, the, in, the, in the Times. Mm-hmm. You, you guys, I guess I should say, write, the laws differ in some respects, but generally agree on blocking any teaching that would lead students to feel discomfort, guilt, or anguish because of one's race or ancestry. And you go on from there. But that's mm-hmm. not exactly what the laws say. And it's an important distinction the laws do not agree on blocking teaching that would lead the students to feel discomfort or guilt or anguish. The, the laws don't want you to, they say you, you cannot teach that an individual should feel discomfort, mm-hmm. guilt, anguish, et cetera, solely because of your race or sex. That is an important distinction. And do you think you should have been more careful on that one?
0: Well, I think that the language that we used probably could have been more careful in saying that the the implication of the law could be that you have a difficult time sort of talking about various issues because once a student feels that they are perhaps, you know, made to feel upset or guilty because of the way a concept is introduced, like there are sort of significant questions there. I think the language that we utilized was supposed to lean into the fact that these are kind of there are a degree of subjectivity. Um, and I think a lot has been made about the use of the word uh, could in the editorial, um, where the law itself um probably uses the word should in a couple of instances, as you just a- a alluded to. But I think in practice, we're not talking about just the one line. If it were just a matter of what the teacher is saying to the student and should then I suppose you might have a better argument. But in this particular case, we're actually talking about materials um, that are being introduced and utilized in class. Um, And it it just becomes a lot more arbitrary whether or not what's happening here is uh, clearly a matter of someone being directed to feel a particular way, or if the general kind of premise of a particular storyline or article kind of suggests that someone ought to feel a particular kind of way. Um, it, it, it's interesting that that it's come to a point where conservatives are now pushing for legislation to police speech, to police conduct in classrooms in order to kind of preserve feelings, because so much of the concern that had been kind of animating folks on the left for a very long time um, has been concern about sort of feelings. The notion of kind of words being inherently dangerous, of ideas being inherently dangerous, of words being quote unquote violence. Um, and I think that that kind of universalizing of this kind of safetyist culture is something that probably ought to concern us and might be a very strong indication that the, the, perhaps the, the approach to trying to address this problem is going in the wrong direction. I, I I for one think it is a bad idea that we're placing kind of subjective feelings kind of at the heart of our approach to trying to have constructive well-informed curriculum in classrooms and, and as the sort of standard for whether or not we're doing the the right thing in classrooms.
1: Okay. I'm going to let Rich take it but I just to clarify so this is just one bill by example, Tennessee. So the laws do not say it's a problem if anyone winds up feeling discomfort, guilty, anguished, or distressed. They, they do not say you may not right. teach anything that makes somebody feel that way. That is definitely not what they do. But right. some critics, I mean, you guys, I read what you wrote. There, there's some other critics like Snyder and others in the New York Times Magazine who, who, are, who really hit that and basically they say this is all about a feelings law. And that's not true. Um, What the laws basically say is you can't teach the one race or sex is inherently superior to another, that you can't teach that an individual by virtue of their race or sex is inherently privileged, racist, sexist or oppressive. You can't teach that um, an individual Mm -hmm. should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment because of their race or sex. Can't treat that their moral character is determined by their race or sex. Can't treat can't can't teach that an individual by by virtue of their race or sex bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by others of the same race or sex and so on. The only thing I say about feeling specifically is what I just read. An individual, you can't teach that an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or another form of psychological distress solely because of the individual's race or sex. So I give it to you on that, Rich, and ask, does, he, does Camille have a point that he thinks, in essence, even if the wording is not what he's saying, these other provisions basically come down to one's feeling in sitting in class. Do they feel distressed? Do they feel like somebody's teaching one race is inherently superior to another and and therefore upset and more likely to file a complaint?
2: Yeah, sorry. I feel, again, a little repetitive now. I, I think it's it's clearly aimed at teachers promoting the idea that students should feel uh, the these ways. But I would, I would have written the Tennessee law differently. I think the Texas law should be revised. I think it will be. But. This seems to me categorically different than you know a speech code on on campus that says you know speech is is violence and certain things can't be said and you have to run into a room to you know play with stuffed animals if you hear them. <laughs> um that's that's not what we're what we're talking about and and two there's uh this this loose idea that you know that uh, conservatives are being contradictory here um because we've opposed speech codes on campuses but here we're supporting these laws again K through 12 uh education is a, is a different thing these 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 teachers are only supposed to be teaching what the state broadly tells them to teach so it's a, an entirely different um uh, area than um than than college education, which should be more free-flowing and, and academic freedom as well established as a practice and in, in the law.
1: Yeah, I have to say, so the piece you took issue with, Rich, um, by this guy Snyder, and people really should read it in your rebuttal because it's, it's fun. You, you went off on Twitter, but the guy's name is Timothy Snyder. He's a professor at Yale. Um, he's a totalitarianism scholar. And the piece mm-hmm. was in New York Times Magazine, not New York Magazine, but New York Times Magazine. And I was laughing out loud at some of these points because he was saying, look, the aim of these laws is to protect people's feelings over facts. And I, mm-hmm. my first reaction was, the left loves to do that. What, aren't they the ones who have been lecturing us on, well, my lived experience is what it is, right? Like Meghan Markle's lived experience is that her kid's not getting a title because he happens to be." part black, even though none of the facts supports that, but we're supposed to accept it because it's her lived experience, (laughs) the hypocrisy. And the other thing they say, he says in this is, um, look, history, he's saying history needs to be taught. Well, it it will be taught, but he's saying history is not therapy and discomfort is part of growing up. Tell that to the statue topplers, to the folks who don't want the founding fathers mentioned in the class because it's too, quote, triggering to those who want. Hamilton canceled, right? They want Winston Churchill banned. They 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 want the Teddy Roosevelt statue removed from the New Museum of Natural History. Tell them history is not therapy, and discomfort is a part of growing up. I mean, to me, it's a bit rich.
2: But uh, strong feelings should be evoked by the teaching of American history. You should be excited about by it. Should be inspired about by it. You should occasionally should be embarrassed by it. You Occasionally should be disgusted by it. And again, I, I don't think uh, anyone is is saying that. Uh, You you shouldn't teach these things that would evoke all those feelings where the the purpose of law is just to say teachers shouldn't go out of their way to say people should feel guilty because of their race or one race is superior uh, than the other. And I I don't know why that's not common sense. And Timothy Snyder, I, I think this this piece is a journalistic malpractice in the extreme and that he hasn't even bothered or the New York Times to to look back and see whether what he said was accurate or there hasn't been a yeah. clarification or correction, I think really speaks poorly of the New York Times. He is a serious historian. Uh, I, I will say, I mean, he's, he's written really well-regarded, um, appropriately well, well-regarded mm-hmm. books, but this he's is just blood, propaganda. Is a talk about, book. A, talk about a moral yeah. panic saying that, you know, Florida is no, no, going to teach slavery or Jim Crow is the yeah, definition. He says
1: it's banned. He says Jim Crow, yeah. it seems to be banned in Florida schools, which is, hundred percent not true. He mis- misrepresents the text of the Oklahoma law as well, um, and so there there are factual errors in here that are just obvious. In, a, in addition to these weird statements that left me with my jaw hanging, like like he's talking about people like you, Rich and Stanley and Chris Rufo, who are in support of these laws, saying authoritarianism is infantilizing. We should not we should not have to feel any negative emotions. Difficult subjects should be kept from us. Oh my God, that is what the whole woke movement is about, right? You can't have any negative negativity. You have to steer clear of anything difficult. I just told this story the other day, um, but my daughter's school, they opened up a discussion about the Derek Chauvin verdict. Okay, she's, she's 10. This is in her fourth grade school. Now we're in summer, but so it's a couple months ago. Derek Chauvin verdict. They give him a Newzilla article. They say, okay, let's talk about the verdict. And the teacher stands up and says there is a massive problem in America of police officers killing unarmed black men. Now, you guys know that's not true. That's that is a total exaggeration. And one of the girls in the class said, well, wasn't George Floyd resisting arrest? Now, she's read this in the article they handed out. And the teacher says they always blame the victim. And my daughter says, wasn't he on a lot of drugs? And the teacher says, this conversation is making me uncomfortable and I am shutting it down right now. <laughs> well,
0: Megan, <laughs> Megan that's such talked. a, that's such an interesting story. I mean, but, but this, I think kind of brings ba- brings me back to the point that I was raising earlier, like the, what's being sold, what's being, what's being promoted by Rich, by, by Chris um, is that, well, Chris Rufo is that these bands are going to you know address many of these problems. That conversation, you know, well, certainly the, the proposed legislation I mentioned earlier, where discussions about certain things, even casual discussions are perhaps prohibited, that might have something to do, that might limit it. But a properly worded piece of legislation here, one that, again, respects the, 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 the classroom and the ability of folks to have exchanges, like none of them are going to prevent that conversation from happening. No, no. And the, the only way- problem. Yeah, the only way to deal with the kind of cultural issues that are happening here is to get meaningfully engaged and to develop better approaches to discussing these issues and to really just address the cultural defect. But it's not either or, but it is often difficult to do multiple things at once. And at the moment, we are just pushing out a bunch of kind of haphazardly designed bills in many instances, the Texas piece of legislation, as you mentioned, has to be scrubbed. I think was the word that you, you used a moment ago, or perhaps recalibrated is a better word. Um, the Tennessee legislation you've acknowledged needs to be redrafted. There are various other ones that have some, some material defects and proposals that are making their ways through state houses that have some serious defects. Um, and, and all at the same time, these things don't actually fix the problem and aren't actually actionable in most not, of the states in the union. And but, it, it but does it, seem important to acknowledge the limitation of this strategy.
2: Yeah. Was, it, but it's unrealistic to say there's one piece of legislation you should fix everything. Uh, I agree. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is a piece of legislation. Th- these are legislations that the prof- prophylactic measures against kind of the most extreme expressions of this. But the idea that, uh, you know the Texas legislature shouldn't do this because it distracts us from fighting back against this more broadly. No, that Texas Texas legislature writes uh, laws governing what's in in the public schools, and then I, meanwhile, I can write about what Texas is doing. I can attack Ibr- Ibram Kendi's uh, philosophy. Uh, the, the local parents in South Lake can do their thing. It's a big country with a with a of, of a lot of different uh, points of influence and, and the idea that uh, all of America is like consumed with what what a state legislature is doing so nothing else can happen <laughs> which I, I know I' I'm, I'm, car- I'm uh, caricaturing a, a little bit but but in, in the idea that you're promoting this this is either or you can't can't do one and can't do the other I think it's all additive. I think it's good to have state guardrails let's write them carefully absolutely have the school board fights write the solid curricula. Uh, Those of us who have uh, platforms, let's push back against this this broad cultural campaign um, that's behind this stuff. All that all that is is uh, good and necessary, in my view.
1: But Rich, what about what about Camille's point that um, this could backfire? He as a tactical measure, he has objections saying, you know, the public is sort of on the same page as I think the three of us are, which is they, they don't like this the CRT being taught in schools. In fact, uh, just pulling a couple numbers for you, th- there was a heritage poll. 79% of voters say children should be taught about the American dream instead of the idea that their destiny is tied to their skin color. 61% reject the idea that America is fundamentally racist. A YouGov poll, 64% of Americans uh, know about critical race theory. 58% view it unfavorably, including 72% of independents who do not want it in schools. So the the tide is on the side of, you know, I think the three of us who don't, who don't like this, not necessarily in favor of bans, but his point is, going after teachers individually, stories making the news, that somebody lost their job because they, you know, misstepped. That could turn in a in an unhelpful way.
2: Well, I I agree. We're, we're basically we're winning this fight at the moment, which is one reason why the advocates of CRT are kind of backpedaling, saying, "Oh no, it's not CRT. What are you talking about? That's only in in law schools." But yeah, there, there's a potential of poorly drafted laws backfiring. So let's write them appropriately. But I think it, it's it's kind of wrong-headed to say, oh, we have really really a strong public backing on this, so let's not do anything. Uh, let let's no, let's no one is advocating
0: let's, for let's, doing. Let's nothing. take
2: that. Let's take that and make it concrete across all these various spectrums I've talked about. Let's have appropriately written state bans. Let's have the school board fights. Let's write better. Uh, curricula. We can't be frozen in place for fear the, uh, of some misstep is is going to make people in favor of critical race theory. And sort of the same principle applies. Okay, so if we're just going to rely on lawsuits, guess what? There are going to be frivolous lawsuits. There, there just are. And there's going to be a victim of a frivolous lawsuit. So should we not file lawsuits either? Um, it, it, if, if we take this as a logical conclusion, it's just a prescription for letting this wash over us because they, because someone might go too far in some realm and, uh, the country flips into all of a sudden in favor of this mm-hmm.
0: stuff. Of all the arguments against me, that's the one I dislike the most. The assertion that, that I am at <laughs> you all hit it. suggesting Finally, that you shouldn't it's do only anything. take me an hour and a half. <laughs> 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 well, well, I hear it. I hear it all the time. It, I am, I am not, asserting in any way, shape or form that people should not do anything. I'm actually suggesting that this is a hard problem and it will not be addressed and remedied easily and that these bans in many instances will not materially impact the problem in the way people imagine. It will not make the sort of disconcerting conversations that that Megan just referred to. Those won't go away. That is going to continue to happen. Right. So the question becomes, like, how do you actually resolve this in a way that makes everyone feel more comfortable inside of our schools? That makes that sort of satisfies this broader universe of concern. Can you do it by banning concepts? Can you do it by 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 outlawing or prohibiting the use or exploration of the 1619 project in your in your school system? And the answer to that question is emphatically no. And but- working on curriculum L- leveraging the decades worth of civil rights um, tradition, law, and legal tradition that we have in this country, in, in where there are egregious things happening, and quite frankly, yes, the journalists doing the the important work, and I've I've credited Chris for this as well. Like when you see horrible things happening, like making certain that people can find out about this, and oftentimes ridicule is a better weapon than than regulation.
2: But my point, though, um, I, I didn't mean to suggest. I know I, I, when I got my rhetorical flight of fancy there, I might have. I didn't <laughs> to I don't want to do it, but I, I was on a run. Okay. A run, <laughs> run. Sometimes you're feeling it. Yeah. I think I'll allow it. my point though is, okay, you want to do lawsuits. Not all these lawsuits are going to be worthy. Some of them are going to be frivolous. Of course. Some parents, of some course. Of their child is going to come home and give them a, a misleading Account of what happened in school, and they're going to sue. So you should oppose it's, that as well. Because it's just less—it's less, that it's less
0: likely. People. It's less likely with the civil rights law because these laws are mature. They have been around for a while. We have no, a history I, of adjudicating these cases, and and these these newfangled pieces of legislation, which, as you've acknowledged, are often poorly written. The possibility for them to be interpreted in ways that are going to have an unwelcome impact on the way classrooms operate is very real. And the possibility of getting that negative news story that Megan referred to earlier, it, it's not just a matter of it being likely to happen. It's already happened. You're going to see more of them. And the question is, how many pink slips are you willing to write in service of trying to do this? And at what point do you think that has a backlash? And I, my suspicion is it won't take much. It won't take
1: well, much. Well, it'd it, be nice. It, go ahead, Rich.
2: I, I was just going to say that the lawsuits have the potential for uh, abuse as well. Uh, mm-hmm, libel law is fairly well established. Defamation law, my magazine was still sued for, <laughs> drag for you know, seven sure. or eight through a meritless lawsuit. So the, there is, uh, the, there's no precisely clean way uh, to deal with this. And I think sure. we should use every, every tool we can. Let's be as, as careful as we can about how we, we use them. But, the, but this is, it's a massive threat and I just go back to you know we, we've kind of batted around the the concept of of panic and th- th- this is something that's coming it, it's and it's already arrived at the shores of some schools and it, it must be stopped for the, for the good of our kids for the good of our society for the good of our national unity it has to be stopped so I, I'm more concerned about that threat than I am about uh, poorly drafted legislation that I think should should be fixed in Texas I've, I have every confidence it it will be fixed but this this is something that we just can't uh that can't can't be tolerated shouldn't be tolerated
1: well we we didn't have enough time to really get into because it's a whole other issue the the notion of school choice but as camille points out this does underscore the need for it and this has been something that's just been impossible when we have democrats in, in power and even frankly when we've had republicans in power we haven't made that much progress on it um But I think that if there's one benefit of COVID, it may be the weakening of the teachers unions in the eyes of the American people. They're they're, You know, the the jig is up. We know they're for themselves and not for our kids. And so hopefully, hopefully school choice will make some inroads, if not under President Biden, then under uh, whoever comes after him. Thanks for staying with us this far. The end of the episode and who's coming up on our next show is right after this quick break. And I just ask? I don't like to make uh, the show about the show, but since it was pretty well publicized that Chris Rufo was originally going to debate you on this, um, Camille, even though I absolutely adore Rich Lowry and would have him on every day if he would do it. Um, <laughs> he bailed. He didn't want to debate you and w- was pretty open about that, even though he had come on your show, the fifth column, which I recommend to everybody. Um, and then he bailed and you kind of gave him some jazz on Twitter and he he came back and said, okay, I'll do it. This is all, I have not spoken to Chris Ruffo. I know what I know from Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, he said he would do it and then bailed again. And I wonder why you think he didn't want to come on and debate you, uh, in this forum.
0: Um, well, I mean, there's, there's probably some, some personal issues there. It's, it's actually, I think that the fallout, like kind of from this editorial being written, um, has been really, really unfortunate. Um, you know, Chris and I have known each other for some time. uh we're not like great friends, um but we at least have been more than cordial uh you know, last week, we talked a couple of times after the the publication of the article. We had very like friendly conversations, then he kind of went dark on me uh and then I discovered this this screed that he wrote about me and the rest of the the folks who are associated with this piece, in which he made a number of assertions um that we really don't make in the piece, but we suggested that these laws were you know, totalitarian, that isn't what we said, Um, that we were sort of scaremongering about these laws, bringing about the end of democracy. That isn't what we said. Um, We defended, I think, a a culture of pluralism as like the guiding principle for whether or not we want to pursue reform through these bans versus getting people involved in classrooms and in their school boards in a different sort of way. And I think it's really unfortunate that he's taken so much of it personally. I suspect that part of the challenge for Chris is He has a great toolkit for confronting people who have diametrically opposed politics to his, Mm, who won't acknowledge exactly who won't acknowledge that that these that they that there are meaningful abuses taking place, that there is a a cultural shift that's happened that is having repercussions and ramifications in classrooms and schools. Like I'm willing to acknowledge all those things. What I challenge is the wisdom of this national strategy. What I challenge Mm -hmm. is in some cases some of the overheated rhetoric that I see Chris using in different contexts. And quite frankly, I mean we just have differences in style. I'm more than the 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 MLK to his Malcolm X by any means necessary. (laughs) Um, I don't I don't use you know sword emojis and and kind of talk about this in terms of you know a holy war, a crusade. Um, I think igniting a wildfire is easy. You know building a cathedral, doing something durable, something that lasts um, is hard. And getting a bunch of people agitated is, is important and valuable, and you can direct that energy in constructive ways. But a- again, passing rafts of laws that aren't necessarily well constructed, that will have unintended consequences, and that are, I think, amplifying both the level of concern on all sides and intensifying a culture war and perhaps inspiring a panic, I think that is, that is meaningfully different having a really constructive project here that is building kind of meaningful coalitions across party lines so that you can get things done in a bunch of different places. And I, I, I will continue to say that I think working on durable solutions like Trump's, like hysteria. It, the hysteria can be good for some people and, and not so good for others.
2: I could just say that this is how out of touch I am. I was unaware of all this until I, I checked Nell's uh, <laughs> timeline to make sure I wasn't missing any, any killer arguments he was going to use against me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why I keep on getting canceled and rescheduled on the podcast. <laughs> if I could just say- You're no, a, a, you're uh,
1: no man's second choice, Rich. Honestly, uh, <laughs> oh, this I don't is, know about this, that. This wound up. <laughs> well, I will say, I listened to the Fifth Column Podcast with with you guys and mm-hmm. Chris and it was I felt a little uncomfortable because he's, he's a little irascible and it was a little just I don't know something about it made me a little uncomfortable and I did, I could sense that there was a tension there which is not exactly what I want to bring to my audience anyway I think this is a very gentlemanly debate can I say yeah. though
2: about Chris it it, it Camille you, you said uh, igniting a, a brush fire is easy no it's not he, he, this this is a huge contribution he's made to this well, well, debate
0: I say but that's it, that's it, fair that's fair he's he's talented he, Chris is talented. He's charismatic. Sure. I, I just don't I think mean, he's, he's always careful.
2: He, he set off this movement. And that's right. I, I think it should be it, it should be used in constructive ways. I think he, he obviously he believes it should be used in constructive ways. But th- this is, you know, this is kind of a rare accomplishment for, sure. for any journalist. I, most of us, you know, well, can I just say whole, something, just something? Let, let, let,
1: let just me down. weigh in on this. Yeah. Chris Ruffo, with all due respect, he's been on the show and I, I admire him and I'm I'm with him on, on most of what he's pushing. Um, but Chris Ruffo is the one who called attention to what was happening at the federal agency level with critical race theory. And he is the one who, who sort of pushed that term to encapsulate all the stuff that's been happening. But there have been a lot of people, Rich, and I've been working with a lot of them. So I know mm-hmm. that they've been grassroots efforts to call attention to what's happening in these schools you know there've been parents coast to coast taking massive risks there've been people organizing big groups like the ones i mentioned earlier and and i like chris but i do think it's slightly irritating when he talks about himself as like the sole person responsible for this entire movement on twitter because he's not he's he's played a, a really important role but you know the self promotion is an off putting thing about him and i think he'd do better to be more i don't know inclusive of the people who have you know who don't get accolades for joining this fight um, and sort of give them credit as opposed to continuing to promote himself.
0: And as well, a personal matter, I, I think it's it's exceedingly unfair and disingenuous to suggest that myself, Thomas Chattenton Williams, David French, people who have talked about um, these these same issues and raised severe concerns about them, that a disagreement about the, stra- the strategy and approach to trying to address that problem makes us, quote unquote, enablers. Um, the piece, the editorial that we wrote was, you know, reposted and promoted and endorsed by the likes of Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter. I believe Andrew Sullivan also um, quote t- tweeted it and directed some attention to it and gave it some praise. Are, are, is he suggesting that they are all enablers as well? There's something really disreputable about that. And there's something really disreputable about leveling charges and allegations like that, but what, broadcasting them to the universe. And then not showing up to, to essentially have a conversation with the person who you've made those allegations about. And I suspect that part of his concern was that um, one of my co-authors, Jason Stanley, posted something that I think is beyond the pale. Something along the lines of suggesting that Chris was like a white nationalist. And I told him he that did. I thought that, that was I, I told him I thought that was completely unacceptable. Um, he did take it down. He didn't apologize. But I'm not responsible for what Jason Stanley does.
1: He didn't want to debate you. And then I think you guilted him back into it. Something happened; <laughs> he agreed to do it again. I, I did. And then he, he bailed again me, after, the, after the after uh, the Stanley tweet, which was beyond the pale. And you know that was out of line. Stanley's tweet. So again, I, I support what the guy is doing. I just think that if you're going to get that in somebody's face on what they've written, right, like he did with you, then come on and defend it. Come, don't you know? Rich does not very admirable job on it, but he sh- he should have been here defending. His, I feel like the such, a, such a sucker, Megan,
2: because I- you just asked me to come on, I say yes, no matter what. Uh, <laughs> See, that's what I love about you. You have to be more exact. <laughs> <I'm sorry.
1: laughs> and, and what did I say when you asked me on National Review? Ah, oh, hell yes. When can I show? This is
2: true. This is true. But I, I just say about Chris, I don't think he denies credit for other other people who fought that. But I I do think you've had a whole huge role crystallizing it and and catalyzing it.
1: Yeah, he has for sure. All right, guys. Well, thank you for all of that. And uh, I guess we're, we're going to leave it for the audience to decide, which is just exactly the way I like the show to be. We report, they decide. <laughs> but I think we've had a thorough fleshing out of the issues, and I appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you both.
1: Do not miss Friday's show. Dr. Ben Carson is coming on. Yay. I love him. He launched his campaign on The Kelly File. Uh, with us we did this long backstory piece on him it was fascinating he's fascinating he takes such a beating doesn't he by the press but he's brilliant and fearless and really damn smart so don't forget to tune into the show for this friday and go ahead and subscribe now so you don't miss it and download and while you're there go ahead and give me a five-star rating and a review i'd love to know where you stand on these critical race theory bands are they a good idea uh, or are they a sacrifice principle? Are they the wrong choice uh, in coming up with the right weapons to fight against this nonsense? Uh, let me know your thoughts. You can go to Apple Reviews or wherever. You can go to our social media. But love hearing from you. And don't miss Friday. Ben Carson. Boom. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megyn Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.
2: The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.